Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the Acast app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number three in our series for 2018, and today's date is Friday, March the 2nd. First of all, I talk to Dr. Raghav Murali Ganesh, who, together with two other doctors, Nikhil Puvia and Martin Sevenaratne, set up an app, CancerAid, that empowers and connects patients and caregivers. CancerAid is a startup, and it has secured investment to make it a global enterprise. It's an exciting story. And then I have a chat with economist Nicholas Grian. He's going to be talking about creating a people's bank, and he wants to stimulate discussion. But first, let's talk to Dr. Raghav Murali Ganesh. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at onepeloton.com. Raghav Murali Ganesh, let's talk about CancerAid. Now, this is an app, isn't it? Correct. And it's an app that's uh, devised by you guys that aims to improve the treatment experience for people with cancers. Is that right? Indeed. Correct, indeed. So CancerAid is an app that was founded by two cancer doctors. I'm a radiation oncologist uh, and used to work at Chris O'Brien Lifehouse in um, Camperdown in Sydney. Uh, and basically, the problem that we saw patients faced was um, was was the same, I guess, the same issues that one patient faced, another patient faced. And it was around uh, at the start of the cancer diagnosis, they often wanted the right information. 
during their cancer treatment, they wanted tools that would help them uh, navigate their treatment opportunities and record their thoughts, their feelings. Uh, they wanted to share their experiences with family and friends um, who they chose. And lastly, they felt isolated and they wanted to hear not just from doctors and nurses, but also from other patients who went through similar experiences to reduce their isolation. So it took us about a year to design and produce Cancer Aid. Um, within 12 weeks of launch, we became the number one cancer app in Australia, the US and the UK. Uh, we now have over 20,000 people using the app worldwide. I'm very proud of that. Uh, but basically, we tried to create a solution that solved some of these antiquated um, ways and how doctors and nurses communicated with patients to try and improve their, their timeline. So, I mean, this was uh, an app that was created by yourself, Dr. Raghav Murulu Ganesh, and uh, Dr. Nikhil Puvia. Uh, now, how does it work? How exactly does it work? Yeah, so those four problems that I, I alluded to earlier, we have, um, I guess, a solution for each one of those problems. So at the start of a cancer patient's um, timeline, they get, um, at the time when they get a diagnosis, they're looking for information, both cancer information and treatment information. And CancerAid provides um, peer-reviewed, medically reliable information. We have a collaboration with the National Cancer Institute, which is the peak body uh, cancer information authority in the United States. And they have information on over 120 cancer subtypes. So the app, the app is free, and this information is provided free of charge to patients um, in an app-friendly format. The second challenge that patients we saw um, was that they wanted tools to help them manage their, their illness. Um, we have a personal journal and a symptom journal. The personal journal, patients can microblog their uh, experiences, evidence, so, so uh, medical evidence and literature suggests that patients who microblog their um, emotional well-being uh, actually have reduced psychosocial distress, um, less risk of admissions to hospital, uh, and thus improved outcomes. We also have a symptom journal. So the symptom journal allows patients to log their symptoms that they have either due to the cancer or, or the treatment they're having. Um, and we have very high quality evidence, so randomized evidence, which is the highest quality of medical evidence, to suggest that patients who log their symptoms um, have three benefits. One is they reduce the risk of being admitted to hospital. Um, there was a, about a 7% decrease in the, the risk of being admitted to hospital. The second was that patients were happier. And thirdly, they actually lived longer. The evidence is, is, is quite strong in, it, in how it suggests that patients do live longer if they log their symptoms and share that with their treating, treating doctors and nurses. Um, and the last couple of things are about communication. We allow patients to communicate with friends and family through a secure channel so they can nominate family or friends uh, and they can share their profile. So it allows them to, it's like a diary that they share amongst the family and friends they choose. So they can keep people up to date as to how their experiences are. And lastly, we've got a community um, where patients can learn from other patients who have gone through similar experiences uh, and thus reduce their isolation. Now, I have to ask you about the business. I mean, this is a startup, and uh, you have already secured several deals with cancer institutions, research groups, and cancer specialists, and they'll license the app, and that will enable you as a company to provide it to patients for free but you can still generate revenue. Is that right? We're very um, deeply rooted in the model that healthcare at the point of contact for patients should be provided for free. Um, I trained in public health systems all my life. 
in the US, in the UK and in Australia. And I'm of a firm belief, I think it's still the responsibility for providing healthcare lies and practitioners generally. Um, so I think it's very important for us to, for cancer to remain free. Now, as a business, we need to have a sustainable business model. And, and for that, that includes driving clinical value. So how can we make the life better for patients and improve their satisfaction, improve outcomes like survival? And what are the commercial benefits of doing that? Who benefits commercially if you reduce admissions? So generally, if you reduce the burden on hospitals, um, there is a return on their investment. So both hospitals can be happy uh, and patients can benefit from that. So that's the real ethos of what we're trying to do sort of uh, in terms of social impact. But uh, at the same time, these cancer institutions and research groups and cancer specialists, they will be licensing the app, won't they? Correct. I mean, it's not so much the cancer specialists, but it's more cancer hospitals at the moment we're, we're, we're looking at. Um, and they have the ability to to bring cancer right into their clinical practice. Um, we integrate into their existing electronic medical records so patients get access to appointments. Um, they get um, to put their symptoms in and that gets integrated into the clinical workflow so it's a bit more streamlined. Uh, and we license the technology to allow that to happen. Now, what's what's interesting, though, too, is that you've already struck overseas deals. I, th- I believe you've struck a deal with the Hong Kong Oncology Centre and, uh, and a health insurance company in Florida. Is that right? We're working with Cedar sinai Hospital in Los Angeles. Um, Cedar sinai is um, one of the flagship hospitals on the west coast of the United States, um, and we are launching a integrated clinician um, and cancer aid app for them uh, very shortly. So we're very excited about that. And that is fantastic. That is Thank fantastic. Now, and, and how did you secure that? So we were, we, we actually were in, on the ground in LA for three months of the second half of last year. Um, certainly in terms of costs related to cancer care, um, the U.S. health system certainly is, I mean, they have very high costs and therefore the opportunity to reduce those costs is, is even greater. Um, so we spent some time in the second half of 2017 um, evaluating how this would fit into the U.S. healthcare system. Uh, and uh, we were very successful in, in, in a setting that, that, I mean, understanding that and then, and then showing a value to the hospital to say, this is what your patients can use uh, and we can improve their care. And this is potentially how you can how you can reduce the costs that you have in terms of caring for these people. Um, and uh, they're very, I mean, we're very excited to work with them. They're very progressive. They're very innovative team at Cedar Sinai. They're always looking to to showcase innovation and bring innovative practices to their patient cohort. So I think it was a very good match that we had. Well, that that is fantastic. But I mean, I have to ask you this. Obviously, wouldn't there be room to expand this app uh, to care for other chronic diseases like for example stroke um that's not a that's that's a really I mean, we've actually had people ask us for a version of cancer aid for stroke um look we do four things in the app we provide resources we manage their illness with a digital tool we let them connect with family and friends and then connect with others who have similar illness so that is a model that's reproducible to any chronic ailment the challenge is that I think to gain the best engagement and the best user experience for a patient, I think it's very important that it's personalized. And therefore, it requires focus from our team to try and deliver a technology that not just 
it's a platform but actually understands the individual traits of a, of a, of a user. Um, my expertise as an oncologist is cancer um, and, and, and that's why we've started with cancer aid. I mean, there, certainly there's, yes, in the future that there's an opportunity for us to, um, if we're successful in this, in this setting, and I mean, even as limited success we've had so far, that we can take it to other disease sites. But um, it's something that we're doing as step two rather than the current step we're in right now. Right, right. Well, that, that's, that's quite an extraordinary step for a startup. And uh, when, when did you actually set up CancerAid? Uh, I guess the, the business was started in all, I mean, the, the idea formed in early part of 2015, but by the time we actually realized that we had to create a sustainable business model and therefore a business, it was the second half of 2015, and the app launched at the App Store in August 2016. Well, two years on, and you're doing very, very well. Thank you very much, Leon. That's quite an extraordinary achievement and uh, so innovative. It's very, very innovative what you've done. Thank you. No, well, well uh, more strength to your arm. Uh, more strength to your arm. Thank you very much, uh, Raghav. My pleasure. Thank you for your time. And now let's talk to Nicholas Gruen. Nicholas Gruen, you have views about the RBA contributing to independent debate about banking, about the banking system. Uh, tell us about that. Well, I, I wrote an article towards the end of last year uh, pointing to the, the difference between the way in which the Bank of England has engaged in the whole question of uh, what's, uh, what, did the, what did the global financial crisis teach us about banking? How can we make it better? Um, and they've been really quite, uh, you know, you could even say trenchant about the current system. Melvin King, who was the governor of the, the Bank of England, the central bank of, of, of the United Kingdom in 2010, said of all the ways to configure banking, the one we've got is the worst. Uh, quite a statement. And really what's happened in, the, in banking and uh, political circles generally is it reminds me of something Keynes said in 1943, and he was saying that during World War One, all people wanted to do was to get back to 1914 before the war, and by the time it had happened again in World War Two, nobody wanted to do that. They actually wanted to make the system work with radical changes. And right now, um, our global financial crisis has given us a banking system, which is, uh, with all the reform we've done over the last 10 years, uh, is pretty much like the banking system we had, but with a number of, uh, you know, improvements to capital adequacy and so on. But it's basically the same system and it's likely to blow up again. And uh, there, so, so, so this was a piece I wrote called Now is the Time for Complacency at the end of last year. And I followed that up with a piece more recently in the Mandarin, uh, Now is the Time for Complacency too, because I've proposed a way of... I think making very substantial improvements, but quite fundamental improvements to banking, really just following simple microeconomic reform principles. And the Reserve Bank governor gave a speech in which he sort of ruled the ideas out of court, not because on the balance of costs and benefits there were more costs than benefits, but because they would involve the central bank competing with the commercial banks. And that was for him a no-no now. It's For me, it's a consideration. It's something to think about. In fact, I think of it as a feature, not a bug. 
but that's just the beginning of a conversation to try and think through the pluses and minuses of different approaches. That's the sort of thing the Bank of England is doing. And sadly, our own econocrats in the Reserve Bank and uh, also we might get onto it, the Productivity Commission, uh, really just don't want to think deeply and imaginatively about these sorts of issues. What you're proposing, therefore, is setting up a people's bank. Now, what would that take and what would be the benefits of having a people's bank? Well, uh, it's a nice way to put it because we actually already have a people's bank. It's called the Reserve Bank of Australia and it's a bank that all the banks get to bank with. Uh, and uh, before the age of the internet, it would be it, it would only be a sort of a slogan, not, not of any practical significance for me to say, well, Westpac can bank with the central bank, the Reserve Bank of Australia. Why can't I? Um, that would have, before the age of the internet, uh, when, you know, there was a pretty strict division between wholesaling things and retailing things, you didn't go online and buy a travel ticket. You didn't go online and bypass your bookshop by buying from Amazon. Uh, now we have the internet. That's a good question to ask. And so effectively, I don't want to set up a people's bank. I want to take the people's bank we have, which provides some basic utility banking services to the banks, and I want to uh, allow it. Uh, I want to use the principle of competitive neutrality. You know that principle that says that Australia Post shouldn't be able to compete with, uh, say, Westpac or, or any other company because it, it, using it, any advantages it gets, for instance, for not having to pay tax or advantages from planning and so on. So we've been to elaborate lengths to ensure that when government bodies compete with private sector bodies, that it's done on a level playing field. I want to use exactly the same principle and say if, um, uh, if Westpac has got a favour from the government, if Westpac has got a system that it can use, then I want to ask the question, is it practicable for everybody to be given access to that system? And it's, about, it's on that principle that I think we can build a profoundly better banking system. And I, I'll, I'll sort of illustrate that for you in a sec. But the other thing I've sub, sub, submitted to the Productivity Commission is exactly the same principle of competitive neutrality with regard to superannuation. So governments provide their employees with defined contribution superannuation schemes, and I think it's the, the principle of competitive neutrality always tries to answer the question, why can't I? If the federal government or the state government provides these services to its, uh, to its employees... Why doesn't it provide it on an open access, full, fully costed basis? So that's that's the sort of idea of competitive neutrality. And I think it could be a powerful tool, a powerful reform principle in areas like finance. And how would it actually improve the banking system if you had a people's bank? So my proposal for a people's bank is firstly that um, the um, – so banks – when, when, when I, if you're banking with ANZ and I'm banking with Westpac and I go online and I make a payment to you, the way the money gets to ANZ is that Westpac and ANZ have what is called an exchange settlement account with the Reserve Bank of Australia. 
I'm arguing that we should all be able to have an account like that. It would be just like a bank account and we would be able to park our money in it just like banks can and receive the cash rate for that money and we would be able to go online and pay the money to anybody else who wanted to be on that network uh, just as we do using the banking system at the moment. So that's the first thing that I want to make happen. These are utility banking services. They don't require any, the Reserve Bank, to set up a branch anywhere. I would also allow, since the Reserve Bank finds itself an overnight lender to the banks and a lender of last resort to the banks, I would also say that when citizens can present super safe assets to back and what I mean and and that that's what I call a super collateralized loan so take your home loan you might be able to get it at uh, say a loan of 80% of the value of your property or 90% of the value of your property as you bring that percentage down the loan becomes safer and safer and safer I would say that at 60% loan to valuation ratio on prime residential real estate that is a very very safe bet and I would then allow the Reserve Bank uh, to simply forward 60% of the value of a property. Uh, then if you wanted to borrow more than that, you'd go and see a commercial bank. So, so that is utility banking with the People's Bank that we already have, and it's been that, and I would have done that in order to try and put citizens on a level playing field with, bank, with the situation that banks are in at the moment. And that would allow a more streamlined system and it would allow better loans, easier loans, easier access to money. Well, it would do all of those things. There's something else completely extraordinary that it would do that is a secret, really, because even economic students are taught that banks uh, collect deposits and then re-lend them to borrowers. That is actually wrong. The Bank of England, again, to, to mention the Bank of England, the Bank of England published a little paper, a little explanatory paper uh, in 2014, and uh, this may shock some of your readers, but uh, banks do not uh, collect deposits and then re-lend them. They do collect deposits, and that's a separate story, uh, but they create money whenever they lend. They simply create it out of thin air. Uh, when a bank lends you uh, $500,000 on your house, uh, it creates an asset and a liability. Uh, the asset is uh, the, the bank's loan. It sits on its balance sheet and it has a right to receive interest and the li you have the liability to pay it back. Uh, they have manufactured money. Now, if... Now, now, governments manufacture money as well, but they manufacture a tiny amount of money. That's the money in your pocket or your wallet, uh, banks, uh, banknotes, and coins. So that's about 3% of the money, and that's a nice little earner for, um, for government, but a small earner. Uh, money for jam, money for nothing. And, of course, that's precisely the sort of money that that's the best way to raise government revenue because it doesn't distort behaviour. That's why we auction uh, spectrum, for instance, rather than just give it to people, radio spectrum to allow people to broadcast in different spectrum, uh, within different bands of the spectrum. Uh, so what I'm proposing would have the government issue 
maybe half of the home, well, probably a little more than half of the amount of money that is lent on housing, and that would involve the government creating the money and then the government in charging interest collects uh, revenue. Simple as that. Uh, and it's a huge amount of revenue at normal kinds of cash rates. At the moment, we're at one and a half percent. At normal kinds of cash rates, this would generate revenue for the government of 30, 40 billion dollars. Uh, extraordinary amount of money, which would enable us to cut taxes elsewhere and make the economy run much better. The Bank of England has a paper which has a somewhat different scheme for the government creating money, but it creates about the same amount of money, and that that produces more economic gains than all of the gains estimated by the Productivity Commission in the 1990s from made from the major areas of competition policy reform. So that's what's on the table. That's what the Reserve Bank won't talk about. Uh, it just says, oh well, it would involve the central bank competing with the with the commercial banks, and wouldn't that be terrible? Um, passing up an opportunity like that without discussion because it makes change. Uh, I thought economic reform was supposed to be a little a little more thoughtful and uh, prepared to uh, tell people no pain, no gain than that. Well, hopefully one day the uh, Reserve Bank of Australia and the Productivity Commission will take up your suggestion and uh, all, the, all, all strength to your arm uh, suggesting this. And uh, it's terrific that we have this up for the public debate now. And thank you very much, Nicholas Greer. So what's happening with the news? Well, get ready for some rate hikes in the US. Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell opened the door for four rate hikes this year. In prepared congressional testimony, he said the market volatility doesn't weigh heavily on his outlook for the economy. He indicated stronger economic growth might prompt policymakers to rethink their plans for three hikes. He was bullish on the economy, maintaining it had strengthened, and the US corporate tax cuts should help deliver higher wages. Comcast has taken on Disney and Fox, jumping into the fray with an audacious US $31 billion bid for UK pay TV company Sky PLC. Disney sees Sky as a crown jewel that it's seeking to buy from Fox as part of its takeover. Now, the Comcast offer exceeds Rupert Murdoch's Fox's bid for the 61% stake it doesn't already own in the European broadcaster, which was announced before Disney unveiled its own takeover plans for Fox. So, we now have a three-way battle, so watch this space. The government's ongoing push to slash the corporate tax rate is facing a second defeat, with One Nation leader Pauline Hanson writing in Australian that her senators will oppose the changes. With opposition from Labor and the Greens already locked in, the Turnbull government will fall short of the numbers it needs to change the tax rates for companies with a turnover of more than $50 million from 30% to 25%. The Australian Securities and Investments Commission has expanded its case against the Commonwealth Bank of Australia over allegations of rigging the bank bill swap rate in a claim lodged with the federal court. The corporate regulator filed the bare outline of their case late last month, but now it alleges the CBA traders sought to manipulate the interbank lending rate on six occasions. That expands their original claim of three dates and includes 19 alleged breaches in court documents, most of which fall outside the statute of limitations. 
ASIC's statement of claims runs to 78 pages. It contains recorded conversations between CBA traders, including Mark, the powerful Al Hulm, and Garfield, bad Kitty Lee, who were highlighted in ASIC's case against Westpac, which is yet to be decided. Now, the Royal Commission into Banks kicks off on March 13th, and the first weeks of hearings will focus on the big four banks' failures with fraudulent residential mortgages, dodgy car finance, and excessive credit card lending. That's according to the Commission's schedule of case studies, which was published on Monday. Now, the Royal Commission will examine the National Australia Bank's fraudulent home loans, which last year led to 20 NAB bankers being sacked for breaching the bank's policies. It will also look at the Commonwealth Bank's broker arrangements, unsuitable overdraft facilities, and add-on consumer credit insurance. All four banks and City will come under the blowtorch. Now, three months after its launch in Australia, Amazon has revamped its Australian site by providing third-party traders access to its highly attuned fulfilment services. From now on, traders selling on Amazon Marketplace will be able to send their products to Amazon's Melbourne's fulfilment centres. They will then pay Amazon to store, pick and pack when the customer places an order. The US retail giant will then ship orders to consumers in Australia and overseas and manage returns. The Fulfillment by Amazon, or FBA, service will allow third-party providers to reach more consumers in more markets and potentially ship products faster. It will also save local businesses time and money because they'll no longer have to individually purchase shipping materials or pack orders and make all those multiple trips to the post office. Products accessed through FBA will be eligible for Amazon's prime, fast, subscription-based shipping service. Amazon plans to launch Amazon Prime in Australia later this year. Now, Amazon Prime costs US $99 a year in the US, where it has an estimated 90 million subscribers. And it's a key to Amazon's strategy for dominance in retailing because it offers free shipping and free access to streaming movies and TV shows. Now, the corporate regulator has outlined plans for its probe into the way Silicon Valley giants Google and Facebook are siphoning up advertising dollars from the Australian media when traditional news companies are struggling with shrinking revenues. The Australian Competition and Consumer Commission is calling for submissions for its broad-ranging inquiry into digital platform media players, new and old, by April the 3rd. The ACCC's Digital Platforms Inquiry Issues paper, released on Monday morning, spells out five areas the regulator is seeking information on. One, whether digital platforms have bargaining power in their dealings with media content creators, advertisers or consumers, and the implications of that bargaining power. Two, whether digital platforms have impacted media organisations' ability to fund and produce quality news and journalistic content for Australians. Three, how technological change and digital platforms have changed the media and advertising services markets and the way consumers access news. Four, the extent to which consumers understand what data is being collected about them by digital platforms and how this information is used. And five, the use of algorithms and the way they affect the presentation of news for digital platform users. Other interesting piece of news is that CrownBet has a new majority owner with Crown Resorts selling its 62.5% stake in corporate bookmaker CrownBet to the Toronto-listed The Stars Group for $150 million. The Stars Group owns two of the world's largest poker sites, PokerStarts and Full Tilt Poker. 
and it runs poker games and tournaments for 115 million customers around the world. While the Stars Group effectively replaces Crown as a majority shareholder in Crownbet, the business will continue to be run by Chief Executive Matthew Tripp and his Melbourne-based team. The Crownbet brand will stay in place until September. Now, a decision is yet to be made on whether the group will ultimately keep the Crownbet brand, but a new name is likely to be needed by the end of the year. The Star Group's entry into the Australian market bolsters Crown's bid for the William Hills Australian business. Crown offloaded Crownbet as part of its $700 million worth of asset sales program announced in September, which is also seeing it selling land in Las Vegas and two floors in Crown's luxury Barangaroo project in Sydney. And the profit reporting season continues, and it's actually winding down. And Here are some of the latest company reports. Australia's biggest insurer, QBE Insurance Group, posted an annual loss of $258 million. That's compared with a profit of $898 million a year ago. And that's because of payouts related to massive California wildfires, storms in Australia and Hurricane Maria. Spark Infrastructure's profit for 2017 rose to $88.6 million as earnings before interest, tax, depreciation and amortisation climbed 4.5% to $791.5 million. Theme parks and entertainment centres operator Ardent Leisure narrowed its first half loss to $15.6 million for the period from 1st of July to December 26. That's compared to a net loss of $49.3 million for the six months to December 31st, 2016. Publicly listed telco Amason posted a $2.4 million net loss after tax for the six months to December a 128.6% year-on-year tumble from the profit it posted for the same period the previous year. G8 Education posted net profit after tax, which was flat at $80.6 million. Caltex earnings, which include the impact of oil prices on the value of stockpiles, rose 1.5% to $619 million, just short of the December guidance of $620 million to $640 million. CapCharge reported net loss after tax of $5.1 million, that included a non-cash impairment charge of $12.3 million on taxi licence plates. Costa Group posted underlying first-half profit up 14.5% to $28.6 million. Iluka Resources has cut its full-year loss by nearly a quarter to $171.6 million, and it's restored its final dividend to its 2015 level. Maggie Beer's Food Empire posted a $250,000 half-year loss. Australia Post delivered a $217 million half-year profit on the back of the $150 million sale of Sydney GPO, Christmas parcel sales, and of course, the same-sex marriage survey. Adelaide Brighton's full-year profit has slipped 2.3% to $182 million, with the cement and masonry supplier making $17.7 million of provisions related to its discovery it had been underpaid for some supplies. Virgin Australia posted a $4.4 million profit for the half-year to December, with underlying profit before tax up 142% to $102.5 million, and that was the airline's highest profit in 10 years. Australia's largest independent regional airline, Regional Express Group's first half profit, soared by more than 40% to $9.1 million. Ramsey Healthcare's first half profit slipped 3.7% to $246.5 million. Women's fashion retailer Noni B has more than quadrupled its half-year net profit to $11.8 million. Bega Cheese half-year net profit has jumped by 31.1% to $20.6 million. 
Furniture and electronics retailer Harvey Norman's half-year net profit fell 19.3% to $207.7 million. And toll road group Macquarie Atlas more than doubled its annual net profit to $519.6 million. And that's it for this week. And if you want to hear more, you can visit us on Twitter at TalkingBiz, B-I-Z-Z, or on Facebook. And next week, we have a terrific interview with Richard Kimber, who set up a company called Daisy, which specialises in artificial intelligence. It's a fascinating startup. Looking forward to bringing you all the business news next week. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.